as a church, we're now property owners. We, we started in October of 2010 in a living room on Campbell Street, just a few blocks away. Then in February of 2011, a few months after we started, we moved to some rented digs, the old Madison Mortgage property on East Market Street. And now we've purchased this building and we've renovated it and we're property owners. Why? Why did we do that? Why why did we move out of the rental world and into the world of ownership? Two reasons. To tell you the first reason, I'm going to start with a story. And the story begins with our gospel reading this morning. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 53. Notice the last sentence. And they worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. Joy filled public worship. Now that's a pretty common reaction. If you're familiar with the scriptures to Jesus rising from the dead. It's not the only place in scripture where we see this phenomenon occurring. It's kind of funny in this passage though, because at the beginning of the scene, the first verse I read to you, the disciples were afraid. Look at Luke 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. So their initial reaction to Jesus was fear. But then after giving them time to calm down, that this dead person is now standing in the room talking to them. Jesus tells his followers that because of his suffering and because of his death, And because of his resurrection, look what he says in verse 47. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Now, this is the reason that Luke's gospel ends with joy-filled public worship. When these people realized that the maker of heaven and earth The creator of all that exists, the one and only true God, when they realized that he had taken our sins, that he had taken our failings, he had taken our pride and our wickedness, when they understood that God himself took on flesh and absorbed the wrath That we deserve for our sins when they realize that God himself suffered in our place and on our behalf. And that now that God, as mind-boggling as that is, even more mind-boggling, he offers us forgiveness. When they realize that, their fear fell away to an even greater reality. Which was to worship this God. To worship him for all he's worth. But that's not where the story ends. It's where I stopped in the gospel reading. But this is a historical event. This really happened. And it carried on. You see this action of joyful public worship became a habit of this group of people. 
And every week on that day of the week that Jesus had risen from the dead, every week on Sunday, the early Christians would get together. Even though it was a work day in their culture, they would meet early in the morning prior to work. And they would worship God with great joy. And as some of you know, the government at the time, the Roman government, didn't take kindly to all of this. It didn't tote the party line. But the church just kept gathering on Sunday mornings to joyfully worship God in the face of this growing discrimination and ultimately persecution. They did this week after week, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And by the time you get to the early 4th century, 303 AD, the discrimination against the Christians, like Kristallnacht in the history of Germany, it broke out into a full-fledged, government-endorsed, government-provoked persecution. And at one point in the 4th century, there were a group of Christians who were arrested because they refused to stop gathering on Sunday to worship. And here, from historical account, is the official charge against them. They were acting against the orders of emperors and Caesars. Here's their reply. We have been celebrating what is the Lord's, and what is the Lord's cannot cease. And so they were killed. What they were talking about by the Lord's, they were talking about Sunday. They were saying, it's, it's, it's domini, it's the word that we get our word Lord's Day from. They were saying, this day belongs to the Lord, and worship on this day cannot cease. Something so cataclysmic in the fabric of the universe occurred, that we cannot stop worshiping God on this day as a group of people, even though you're going to kill us for doing this. It is the day of the Lord's resurrection and of Christians' participation in the new creation. It is the day of the Lord's presence actualized in the Eucharistic celebration. And so this group of Christians against the mightiest political power of the day, they insisted in the face of death on the primacy of Of Sunday worship. Now this story. A story that begins with joy filled. Public worship after Jesus' resurrection. And it winds its way down. Through the ages. Through many different cultures. Even when the price of it is death. This story reminds us. That God's people. Throughout the ages. Have recognized that gathering. To do what we're doing this morning. To worship God is not only profoundly important, it is the most important thing the church does. Worship is the very essence and the goal of a church's existence. Now, look, in a very real way, all of a Christian's life can be worshipped to God. I am not talking about that. I am talking about this public, ritualized, Sunday worship. It is the most important thing that a church does. Our basic identity is this. 
So that is one of the fundamental reasons we purchased a building. Because we were out of space to do this. And this is the most important thing that we do. Sunday morning worship. We physically could not do it in our old space. One Sunday, the Hansons were standing so far back in the standing room only that they left. There was no more room for them. It just didn't even work anymore. They gave other people a place. So as we ran out of room, we had been looking for a long time for another place to go. And our options boiled down to a rental property that was about $3,600 a month. Or the purchase of this building for $1,000 a month. For the first three years. And then after that 15 years. Of of $2,200 a month. So that was a no brainer. For us. From the standpoint of our. Fundamental identity. And economics. We needed. This building to do. The most important thing. We do. Now worship is our defining characteristic. But it is not the only thing that a church does. It's the most important thing. But not the only thing. As a church, in addition to what we're doing here this morning, in addition to turning our face toward God and worship, we must also turn our face toward the margins, toward the margins of our city, our community. We must be a voice of conscience in our community. We must be a champion of the poor and the oppressed. This is fundamental to what it means to be a church. In addition to worship, Turning our face to the margins is our job. A little earlier, Genevieve Robertson read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The second verse she read went like this. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ. Now, Paul, who wrote this part of the New Testament, he wrote more of the New Testament than more of the parts of the New Testament than any other New Testament writer. When he's writing to churches, he always, always refers to a church in two realities, who they are in Christ and who they are in place. You look at his letters, he always refers to to a group of people defined, he insists, by two realities. Who they are in Christ and who they are in place. Now I've talked at length about who we are in Christ. I'm not going to focus on that this morning. I want to talk to you about this whole issue of who we are in this place. Because you see, the kingdom of God is primarily local. And one of the very serious and intensely practical implications of that fact, that the kingdom of God is primarily local, one of the very serious and practical implications of that is that for a church to exist for the glory of God, it must be a church for the good of its city. We see this throughout Scripture. We talk about it a lot here at our incarnation. So I'm not going to go into demonstrating how this is true in scripture. We heard some of it in the passage Leanne read, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. Where the people of Israel were refusing to take their place seriously. And so God demanded that they do it. 
This morning what I'm going to do is talk about how this issue that the kingdom of God is primarily local. That our basic identity is a two-fold identity. Who we are in Christ and who we are in place. I want to take the next few minutes to talk about how that relates to the purchase of this building. And to do that, I need to point out something about our particular moment in time. This moment where we live, this moment that we live in here in the West, many people call modernity. We live in a modern world. Even if you talk about post-modernity, that's just the climax of modernity. It doesn't even change its fundamental brokennesses or glories. Here's the important point for us this morning. At the heart of modernity are many good things and many terrible things. And one of the brokennesses of our modern world is a chronic displacement. We are displaced people. We've lost our roots because we've got the speed of culture and technology and the automobile and the state of economics. We are constantly on the go through places. We're no longer deeply rooted in places. Now, it's not wrong to move, but if you want to flourish as a human, you must become deeply rooted in a place. That's the way God set it up. Highly mobile lifestyles alienate humans and they undermine community. Now, there's a lot going on there, but let me show you how this relates to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. And to us buying this property. Now, of course, the church is more about the people than it is about the building. And just like you can have a family without a home, you can certainly have a church Without a building. The church is the people. And only secondarily is the church its structures and its property. At the bottom, the church is the people of God. The body of Christ believers. So even if all the chapels and all the sanctuaries and all the cathedrals on this earth were destroyed. The church would still live on. But... Becoming property owners at this moment in time in our culture is a really good way to push against the tide of our culture that is so committed to displacement, to mobility, to tragically losing our sense of a place. You see, it's a move of our culture to say what really matters isn't what I do with my body, but who I am on the inside. And Christianity says, no, what you do with your body affects who you are on the inside. And it is the same move that has lost its ability to speak with rigor and sophistication about sexual ethics. It is the same move that causes many in our culture to say churches don't need buildings. It's a move away from the physical to what really matters is the spiritual. And buying property is one way, not the only way. You can do it in other ways. But it is one way that we can push against the displacement of our culture. Now, as a church, we see that the wonderful redemption of Christ is about the recovery of his purposes for all of his creation. The gospel story is the true story that God made a good world. Not just good spirits that get wrapped up into prison houses of bodies. 
But God made a good world. And that this world, its goodness was marred by sin. And that through Jesus, God is redeeming not only our soul, but this world. He is redeeming it to God at an infinite price. So that someday, he will return and he will renew all of creation. And he will end all suffering and all death. And he will restore absolute peace and justice and beauty and joy to this world. All of the places where there's not peace... He will reclaim it for his kingdom. All of the places where there is not justice, he will establish justice. All of the places where beauty has been stripped, he will return to beauty. All of the places that lack true, deep joy, he will return to joy. And when we see that, when we see that the whole gospel is for the whole of reality, then suddenly issues like zoning... And business and homemaking and gardening and farming and justice and education. All of these issues that your body gets involved with. That make up the everyday ordinary life you live. All of these issues are spiritual and not just marginal to the work of the church. We tend to assume that the physical life we live is incidental to the Bible and to the core message of salvation, but it's not. That's why we're called the Church of the Incarnation. That's one of the primary reasons for our church's name. So one very real reason for us to purchase this building is that it embeds us In the lived physical reality of this community. It embeds us in laws. And zoning. It embeds us in the warp and woof of lived life. It has a strong possibility of of helping us to accept the reality of who we are. Not only in Christ, but in place. To the church of God that is in Christ in Harrisonburg. That's how Paul would start the letter to us. And and if you don't take Christ seriously, you're denying the gospel. And if we don't take Harrisonburg seriously, we are denying the gospel. So as a church, we exist for the glory of God and for the good of the city. And if we are going to contribute to the good of our city... Six things we must do as a church. Number one, instead of using the city to benefit our church, we must learn to use the resources of our church to seek the good flourishing of this city. Let us not be the church that always goes to the city with its hand out. Let us not be the group of people who exist to coerce everybody around them into giving us a deal. Just imagine with me, if we take both realities seriously, who we are in Christ and who we are in place, and imagine with me if we attend closely to this piece of property, and we develop the square footage that we own, the building, the land behind it that goes over I've totally drawn a blank. Blacks run to the other side. What, what happens if we take it seriously and we work to develop this property in a healthy way? 
Do you realize this will make a major contribution to the commons of our city? And do you know what one of the biggest problems with the church is today? She has no plausible witness. Do you realize how it will make our witness plausible to Christ in this world? Just as creation constantly declares God's goodness and power, do you see how we can join in with that declaration and declare to our city the goodness and power of God for this piece of creation that we now have authority over? Our place, not just our words, not just our souls, but this property can bear witness to the extraordinary God who has come to us in Christ. I encourage you to work this out on a personal level. You are blessed to live in the valley. What an incredible place to live. But ultimately, I hope you realize that you live here not only to be blessed by this place, but to serve the valley. As you serve God. A second thing we must do if we're going to be a church that not only lives for the glory of God, but also contributes to the good of the city is this. We com- must commit to the long haul and stay put. Listen to this amazing command that, that Leanne read to us from Jeremiah 29 verse 4 through 7. The people of Israel had been attacked and defeated by Babylon. By the, by the Persian Empire. They'd been hauled off as slaves and captives to the capital city of that empire. And they refused to move into the city. They refused to buy houses in the city. They refused to get involved in the life of the city. You know why? Because the kingdom of God was about the spirit. And that place corrupted their spirit. Because they kept dreaming of what it was like in Israel. And God rebukes them. And he says to them what? Move into the city. Buy houses. Plant gardens. Get married. In other words, commit for the long haul. Healthy communities will only happen when individuals commit to a particular place and particular neighbors in the long-term work of placemaking. Some of the prevailing winds in our society tend to make us highly individualistic. And the gospel should destroy that. The gospel should destroy the natural selfishness of our human heart. And it should lead Christians... To sacrificially serve the benefit of the whole. And that requires centuries, not revivals. Number three, if we're going to be a church for the good of our city, we must learn to pay attention to our community. We must learn to see where the people of this community are flourishing. And we must learn to see where they are not flourishing. We must learn to see where our, the earth in this community is flourishing. And where the ground in this community is not flourishing. And to see clearly, we must slow down. To take our place seriously, we have to slow down. You cannot see clearly quickly. 
We have to be still and attentive. We have to, we have to develop a slowness and a waiting and a stillness that are fundamental to hearing, listening, and seeing. How many of you, after all, really like it when your parents don't stop and listen? You know why you don't like it? Because they can't hear you if they don't. Number four, if we're going to be a church for the good of our city, we as a church must resist tribalism. If we're going to take 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2 seriously, we must resist tribalism. Now, some of the prevailing winds in the religious landscape of North America tend to make people like us tribal. But we need to live out our life in this place and on our jobs and in our homes and in our church in such a way that we are known as a group of people committed to all of our neighbors near and far, no matter what their religion is, no matter what their denomination is, no matter who they voted for. No matter what their sexual orientation is, no matter what their economic philosophy is, no matter what the status of their citizenship is, we must be known as people who love our neighbors and the love of neighbors trumps all of those categories. Our community is culturally diverse. We must become acutely aware, not only of the groups in our community, but we must seek to understand those groups. So that we can communicate and navigate in ways that matter. The reality is that most of you are like me. You grew up in a homogenous community. And there is a deep need for us to come to understand how so many of our attitudes about politics... Our attitudes about what's normal and reasonable. So much of what we think is ironclad logic and just common sense. Is in reality a function of our race and our class. And not the truth. Now we can't be all things to all people. But we must work really hard at being as diverse and inclusive as possible. Now, I know there's a lot of messiness there to unpack. But in the context of being in place and in Christ, on the in place side, we have to take the place seriously. Number five, if we're going to be a church for the good of our city, we must approach the issues of our neighborhood in a way that is primarily personal. And not program oriented. Not programmatic. We will not contribute to the good of the city. We will not live out Jeremiah 29. We will not live out 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. We will not contribute to the commons. If we ignore the actual. And the particular circumstances in which our neighbors live. We cannot do things that are disincarnate. We cannot use programs instead of relationships. One of the reasons that we committed to being downtown is so that when we turn our face to the poor, it's not a project flying in from the suburbs, but it's the poor we step over on the way into our church on Sunday mornings. One of the reasons we committed to a more expensive piece of property than we could have gotten outside is for this very reason, so that mission is a personal thing and not a project and not a program. 
Look, as Christians, our primary theological tenet is the Trinity. God is personal and he's interpersonal. And there is nothing that God does that doesn't flow out of the Trinity. It doesn't flow out of his personal relationship and his interpersonality. And so when we start to develop strategies that bypass the personal and the local, then we are just hamstringing ourselves. Because we are out of sorts with the grain of the universe. Because God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the grain of the universe. Now finally, number six. As we labor for the good of our city. As we take Paul seriously. As we take the incarnation seriously. We need to rely on God. As much for our giving. As we do for our receiving. We need to learn to rely on God. Look, we've been taught, so many of us come from the conservative evangelical world. We have been taught to rely on God for everything we receive. But look, we're going to be committed to being a small church. One of the reasons we like this building is because we can't get much bigger. Because the kingdom of God is primarily local. We have no desire to become a mega church. Now, there's a place for that in the kingdom. It is not our place. Now, there's tricky ways for now. There's tricky ways for how we're going to accomplish that. But look, what I'm saying is that if we're going to be a small church that takes its neighbors seriously, there's a reality: we don't have enough money, and we've got to learn as a church to take risks together, where we trust God as much for our giving to others as we do for our receiving. We've got to see that God not only provides us with the resources we need, he will provide us with the resources others need. And this is a critical point. Because the mission of Jesus brings good news to the poor. The church flourishes at the margins. That was Jesus' inaugural sermon. And we've got to embrace that. I love this location. Where this is in the city. Puts us with a diversity of neighbors. We've got to see the homeless that sleep behind our church and under the bridge as our neighbors. We've got to see line weaver as our neighbors. And we've got to realize it is our birthright as a church to turn our face toward the marginalized, the oppressed, the weak, those who cannot defend themselves. Now, there's lots of talk, lots to talk about here, but all I'm trying to say is that what we need to give is more than we have, so we must learn how to rely on God as much for our giving as we do for our receiving. Now, going back to where we began, worship is the essence of being a church. It is our most important action. But we must turn our face toward the city. And in particular... We must turn our face toward the margins, the poor, the powerless, and the hurting. But this work we do for the good of the city, it's different than worship. The worship we do on Sunday, that is our most important task. And it nurtures us as we go out into the city. Our mission to the city doesn't make us who we are. You see, I'm trying to challenge both the liberal church and the fundamentalist church. You see, the liberal church sometimes thinks its essence is in its mission to the poor. And the fundamentalist church sometimes thinks that the poor don't matter. 
And I'm trying to cut a line right through the middle of both of those. That our identity is not in our faith toward the poor. It is in our worship. But that does not relieve us of a fundamental job, which is to turn our faith to the margins. The reality is that all of our good deeds, all of our service, all of our labors for the city can be taken up by other religious and secular groups. But our worship cannot. That alone defines us. So the relationship of these two things is really hard to keep straight. But we don't keep it straight and then go and do it. We just got to get out there and do it and course correct along the way. And as we gather for worship, God will nourish us and he will redirect us toward the world. Our worship services end with what? They begin, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. They begin by saying that's the greater reality. But they end by us being commissioned by the power and blessing of Jesus to go into the world. Our worship service itself preaches the message that I'm preaching this morning. And as we continue to turn our face toward God in worship, we will discover that a church for the glory of God, if it is indeed for the glory of God, always becomes a church for the good of its city. And to the extent that it does not, it erodes its glorification of God. Here we are in this beautiful building. It is such a gift from God. Lots of kinks to work out. It is such a gift from God. And as we receive the gift of this building, may it lead us to take God even more seriously and and to be even more serious about holiness and about worship. And we must also commit with all of our resources and all of our faith and all of our life, we must commit to serve sacrificially the good of this city and especially the poor. Let's pray.